land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my new co-host, the legal affairs editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books and a lawyer specializing in entertainment and business law, Don Franzen. Hi, Don. Hi, thank you, Lori. Thank you so much for being here. And joining us will be Stephen Rohde, a constitutional lawyer and author, and also Gil Garcetti, the former district attorney for Los Angeles, to talk about the two death penalty initiatives, 62 and 66. We are here just before the election to talk about two very important initiatives on the ballot. This is the first time ever that there has been an anti-death penalty initiative and a let's make execution quicker initiative on the ballot at the same time. I am here with two very distinguished legal minds. One, Don Franzen, who is the legal affairs editor at the LA Review of Books, which I understand is a wonderful publication. He's also a lawyer specializing in entertainment and business law. And I also have Stephen Rohde, who is a constitutional lawyer and author, and he is chair of Death Penalty Focus, which is committed to the abolition of the death penalty. And he has represented two inmates on death row. It's an extraordinary moment. Maybe Stephen Rohde, you can just give us a background. Well, thank you for devoting some time to this. There are times in our history when key issues reach a tipping point, and I think the death penalty is one of them. California has a death penalty. We have not executed anyone in 10 years, while the protocol of the ugly cocktail to use lethal injection has been litigated. But there are now over... 24 states that do not have the death penalty on the books or have uh, moratoriums, and 26 states that have the death penalty. California has the largest death row in the United States with close to 750 men and women, representing 25% of the United States death row. So what happens in California in November could be a tipping point. It could also signal the U.S. Supreme Court that the evolving standards of decency that mark a civilized society, which is their definition of cruel and unusual punishment, may have been reached. And therefore, what California does could affect the Supreme Court, which could affect the entire United States, and add one more country to the 140 countries around the world that have abolished or ended the use of capital punishment. Steve, let me ask you, how did we get to the state that we're at now in California? California still has a death penalty, at least in theory, as you just mentioned, with 750 inmates awaiting execution at some stage of appellate review. What's the background? How do we get to the point where California has this large a population, and what are the procedures that currently are in place for dealing with the death penalty appeals? There was a period in the 70s when the U.S. Supreme Court confronted the death penalty, struck it down, but then allowed the states to individually reinstate it. And in 1978, the Briggs Initiative, 
was passed by the people of California, and it reinstated the death penalty. In a kind of law and order atmosphere, there was public support for the death penalty, which in fact has waned and diminished to the point that the Pew Research Center found the lowest support, less than 50% support for the death penalty across the country. In California, it was set up so there'd be a guilt phase, whether the person committed the murder with special circumstances, and then a penalty phase, whether upon conviction that person should receive the death penalty or life in prison without possibility of parole. California has that alternative. And in the current debate on the ballot, what we call LWAP, life in prison without possibility of parole, is a legitimate alternative for people concerned about public safety and holding people accountable. So this is no suggestion of uh, opening the doors or letting people go free. A person that has been lawfully and constitutionally convicted in this state can be imprisoned for the rest of their natural life. It is because of those two systems and then a series of direct appeals to the California Supreme Court that this has become a very expensive, very complex system. And after direct appeals, and this is relevant to the propositions, we have state habeas corpus, the great writ borrowed from English law, habeas corpus, the idea that anyone can come back before a court if they find evidence of their innocence or evidence of ineffective assistance of counsel or any other grounds. And that goes through the court system in the state courts and then in the federal courts. So that process is a necessary background for voters to understand what they're facing in November. Can you give us a little bit of background? How did it come to be that we got these two measures together this year? Is there a person or organization who is behind Proposition 66? Right. So 62 would end the death penalty. It's a very simple proposition. It would end the death penalty. All current members, inmates, would then get life in prison. 62 would increase to 60% the proceeds from prison earnings that would go to restitution and victims' families, and it would save $150 million a year. If all voters cared about was money, the independent legislative analyst says in the ballot measure that passing 62, ending the death penalty, will actually save $150 million. When we talk about the expense of the death penalty, the numbers are extraordinary. Since 1978, California has spent $5 billion on the death penalty. A thousand men and women have been sentenced, but 13 have been executed, which means that overall the cost of each of those executions was $384 million. Anyone has to think twice about such a system when it's coupled with all of the flaws and the risks of executing innocent people that this state has devoted that kind of resource to this form of punishment. There was a proposition four years ago, Prop 34, on the 2012 ballot. It came within 2%, the first time the voters had a chance to look at the death penalty since 1978, and 48% voted to repeal it. The other side, I believe, has calculated that by putting Prop 66 on the ballot, they say, mend it, don't end it. 
And as we'll get into, the problem is that Prop 66 makes it worse. But that's how we find ourselves confronting the voters with these two propositions. Steve, in fact, you mentioned a bit ago that the United States Supreme Court came very close to abolishing the death penalty in the 1970s, and then it retreated. But now it seems that perhaps, at least in dissent, there may be a growing consensus and a minority of Supreme Court justices that it's time to come right out and say that the Eighth Amendment prohibits it. In fact, in a review that we published in LARB just recently on two books on the death penalty, the title of your review is The Machinery of Death, you talked about the book Against the Death Penalty, which analyzed a dissent recently by Justice Breyer. Maybe you should comment on that, because it seems Justice Breyer really laid out the argument for stopping the machinery of death. Yes, Justice Breyer, in a decision called Glossop, really wrote a blueprint for ending the death penalty in the Supreme Court. We have these two roots. We have popular votes that put laws into effect, and that's why the voters of California have an opportunity to vote on it. But we separately have the judiciary. And the Supreme Court, under the Eighth Amendment, if it found the death penalty now in practice cruel and unusual punishment, could strike it down for the entire country. Justice Breyer, about 18 months ago, really cataloged the flaws in the death penalty system, the uncertainties, the ambiguities, the conflicts that in the law allow for people to be executed despite racial disparities, geographical disparities, economic disparities, errors by judges and juries and police and prosecutors, really emphasizing that, as I once said early in my speaking on this, that the death penalty is a perfect punishment in an imperfect system. It's perfect because it ends the life of the person who may want to unearth evidence of their innocence and forever cuts off the chance of an innocent person proving their innocence. And it's in an imperfect system filled with human flaws. Yes, I was going to say that you're both fortunate and unfortunate that your issue is so emotional for people. It's, I think, very much akin to abortion. People kind of go haywire and don't necessarily use rational arguments when talking about this subject. I remember Glenn Beck saying that it was such a waste of money to keep Charlie Manson alive in jail all these years. It doesn't matter what the actual numbers are. People have these black and white arguments about evil and getting rid of evil and what they deserve. And do you try to use that kind of emotionality to your advantage or how do you address it, rein it in, speak to it? Both sides have both a emotional and a rational way of approaching these issues. The emotional side for the proponents of the death penalty is to trot out these horrible crimes. No one is excusing crimes of violence and murder, which now qualify for the death penalty. And no one is excusing the need for punishment and for accountability. On our side, we point out that there are innocent lives that have been lost. We have documented cases in Texas and elsewhere of innocent people executed. 150 men and women have been exonerated, largely through DNA evidence, and those families were facing the prospect of their loved ones being executed. And then you have the victim's community. The victim's community is not monolithic on this. We, in the case of Prop 62, have 
the relatives of men and women killed, and those family members oppose the death penalty. They reject the prosecutor's notion that there is, quote, closure when someone else is killed by the state in retribution for a murder. So the victim's community, although some support 66, many support 62. Our challenge is really when we believe we have the facts and evidence to support 62 and to rebut 66, whether that information will get out to the voting public in this gigantic voter's guide, close to 300 pages. We can only depend on communications work we're doing, the vast number of endorsers like the League of Women Voters and the California Democratic Party and the Catholic Church and unions and the ACLU, as well as people who have changed their minds. We have many prosecutors. The warden of San Quentin, Jeannie Woodford, is against the death penalty. We have the former attorney general of the state of California, John Vandekamp, and I know we'll be joined by Gil Garcetti, the former district attorney of Los Angeles, who now is against the death penalty. These people have studied it, and when it is studied, it is a relic of a racist, barbaric form of criminal punishment that I think the vast majority of people don't support. Following up on that point, Steve, let's place this in an international context. Where does the United States stand in the state of California in relation to, let's call it the rest of the first world or even the civilized world as far as the imposition of death penalty? We are in an ugly company when it comes to the execution of criminal defendants. The five largest killers by execution in the world are China, Iraq, Pakistan, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and the United States. That is the company we're in, as against all Western democracies, countries that have suffered through wars and genocide. The International Criminal Court Charter, the dream of Eleanor Roosevelt and others to have a permanent court to try genocide and crimes against humanity, bans the use of the death penalty in its charter because that body and the world community understand that you don't model your behavior as governments after the behavior of people often deranged, often disturbed when they commit the worst act of their lives. Can you summarize the argument of the proponents of 66 and refute them? Yes. And and along the way, also explain what exactly 666 would do. By the way, 66, numerologically speaking, we all know what that stands for. The devil. (laughs) But also, 66 is a kind of a complex initiative, and it tinkers a great deal with the whole procedure by which death penalty cases are decided. So perhaps start by summarizing that, if you could. Yes, and I'll summarize and critique and give some of the arguments simultaneously. There are five basic provisions in Prop 66, although it's actually much more complex than that. And frankly, I believe it's a false promise because it's promising voters in the Voter's Guide that it will speed up execution, that it will save money, and upon study and reflection, it does the opposite. First of all, it requires lawyers because there's a shortage of lawyers. Believe it or not, as we sit here today, 
40 men and women on death row don't have lawyers for their direct appeals. 350 of them don't have lawyers for their habeas corpus, that second level of protection. This is a scandal. The government hasn't appropriated the funds. The complexity of these cases is enormous. What 66 does is ignore all that and claim that lawyers who now handle non-capital cases, all of the other kinds of serious criminal cases that are appealed to the California Supreme Court, those non-capital lawyers must take death penalty cases or be eliminated from the panel on which they depend for their livelihood and their law practices. Forcing lawyers to take these very serious cases is no answer, and what it will lead to is more claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, more appeals, and more delay. Secondly, it claims to tell the California Supreme Court that these cases must be decided in five years. The direct appeal and the state habeas corpus. Currently, direct appeals take 15 years to 25 years to be finalized. You cannot constitutionally tell the California Supreme Court that in discharging due process, it has to speed up its analysis by five years. On that habeas corpus, it does something extraordinary. Instead of the California Supreme Court with the experts that they are, it sends state habeas corpus cases back to the Superior Court in front of the very judge who just presided over the trial, which is often riddled with error, which is being raised in habeas corpus, and it goes back to the state trial judge to decide that. It requires counties to appoint lawyers for those cases, which is unheard of to this extent. And listen to this, it adds two levels of appeal, because if you start in the Superior Court, you then appeal to the Court of Appeal, and you're back in the California Supreme Court. So this proposition adds levels of appeal and expense, which is nowhere disclosed in their ballot measure. It will also create many death rows around the state. It will move death row inmates away from San Quentin and Chowchilla to individual prisons around the state, adding to the security costs. And finally, whereas now we have open disclosure on lethal injection and the Administrative Procedures Act, it will clothe that in secrecy, hiding away from the public this fundamental question that if we have a death penalty, how are we effectuating it? This proposition, had it been heard in the legislature with hearings, with evidence, with experts, with testimony, wouldn't have made it out of committee because it is so riddled with delay, expense, and error. And unfortunately, in our proposition system, it is being put out to the people as a speed-up execution proposition with a law and order motif, and I think it's a dangerous proposition. It is a fraud on the voters. I hope they can see through that in its summary and its principles and in listening to radio shows like this one. If they both pass, the one that gets the most votes, the raw total of votes, even if they both pass, is the one that will prevail. Steve, you mentioned the Great Writ, habeas corpus borrowed from English common law. In fact, that was so important that the founders of this country put it right in the Constitution, the idea that you always had the right to go back to court to try to prove your innocence. 
It was so important in English law and American law that even after all your appeals are exhausted, there may be other evidence of your innocence. Or you want to litigate how good your lawyers were and whether they were ineffective. Your direct lawyers aren't going to raise their own ineffectiveness. So it takes habeas corpus, a separate proceeding with separate pleadings, with separate litigation, to unearth evidence of innocence. This is such a powerful remedy that when you get to federal habeas corpus, 67% of California death row convictions are either reversed or sent back or retried because serious error is found in the habeas corpus process. That's how important it is. Now, with Proposition 66, tinkering with habeas procedure, is there perhaps an issue that 66 would be found unconstitutional? We believe on two or three grounds, if 66 passes, it will be challenged in the courts. It will be mired in further litigation over the very terms of it, let alone the cases that follow it. So this is really a nightmare. This is tinkering, as we say, with the death penalty. This is tinkering with the system. And to that extent, I think it misleads the voters. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now back to our interview with Stephen Rohde and Gil Garcetti. We are joined now by former chief prosecutor of the County of Los Angeles, Gil Garcetti, who served in the district attorney's office, I believe, for nearly 30 years, eight years of which he was the chief prosecutor, the district attorney of Los Angeles County. Thank you, Gil, very much for taking some time to talk to us today. Indeed. Thank you for the opportunity to be heard. As a prosecutor, you were responsible for a number of death penalty cases. As the district attorney, you prosecuted death penalty cases. You believed in it in those days. I know you were very cautious and thoughtful in the prosecutions you brought, but over the years, you've had a chance to reconsider, and I know now that you have vocally for the last four years, and in writing, and in connection with the current two propositions, taken the position against the continuation of the death penalty in California. Could you talk about the reasons for your change in position? Sure. Let me uh, make sure it's clear, though. I was a district attorney for eight years. I was a chief deputy district attorney before that for four years. I never personally tried a death penalty case myself. I tried many other cases, but I never tried a death penalty case. Nevertheless, as the district attorney, I had the final say on the decision whether we seek the death penalty where someone is eligible under the law for the death penalty. And I did believe in the death penalty as we enforced it in Los Angeles, and that's a broad issue right there all by itself, but I won't get into it right now unless we have time. We only sought the death penalty in less than 20% of all cases where someone was eligible for the death penalty. And the reason that I supported it is because I believe that there was some deterrence to going after the death penalty. Maybe it would deter others. I have now been convinced and 
it didn't take that much push because everyone is pretty much in agreement now that there is no proof whatsoever that the death penalty deters the crimes that we're talking about in terms of murder and certainly crimes that might result in the death penalty. So I asked myself the question, so what purpose does the death penalty serve? And there's only one answer. It's a revenge. And my position was, we really can't afford this. This is an incredibly costly process. And virtually every prisoner is going to die a natural death. A few will commit suicide. Maybe one or two are killed while they are in prison. They will die a natural death all the while living what you'd consider a luxury life in prison. And by that I mean, unlike the general population where you have two prisoners per cell, death row inmates have their own cell. They have a right to a television and computer in their cell. Anytime that they are sick, they don't have to go and wait in line to see a nurse or a doctor. The nurse and doctor comes to them all meals are brought to them. They don't have to wait in line. There is 24-7 access by anyone who wants to see them. And so this raises the cost factor incredibly. But then there were two other issues that really began to bother me once I started finding out about it. One was a number of people who were found to be improperly on death rows, not just in California, but throughout the country. Some were factually innocent, and some others were reversed for a number of reasons. When I see now that in California we have close to 750 people on death row, you cannot convince me, Don, at this point, that we do not have at least one, probably several, who are factually innocent and many who do not deserve to be on death row. So that was an important consideration. And then the last consideration was, I know what this does to the family of the victims, the close friends of the murder victim. They are never, ever in their lives going to have closure. But we know that a majority of death penalty cases are ultimately reversed. I think we had one just about a year or two years ago someone who'd been on California's death row for, I believe it was, 32 years, and that case was reversed. What does that do to the family? They have to continue to live this, not just for the 32 years, but for this entirety. And there's no way that that person that's ever going to be executed, obviously. If you change the law that fully protects the community from these some barbarous individuals at times, by keeping them in prison for the rest of their life, that gives the family of the victims, the close friends of the victim, at least legal closure. They know it's done. It's over. That person will die in prison, will never get out of prison. And so that's when I started saying that I have to be speaking out on this. I know most of my colleagues in the DA's office, former and current elected district attorneys take a contrary view, but most, and I've talked to a few of them at least, know that eventually this law is going to change. There will not be a death penalty. So why do we continue this charade 
why don't we end it now, save literally hundreds of millions of dollars, and use that money for a good purpose rather than simply keep people on death row where they're going to die a natural death, most likely. In fact, Gil, you put your name to the rebuttal to the argument in favor of Proposition 66. So can you explain why is 66 a bad idea? Well, 66 is badly flawed, in my opinion, legally for a number of reasons we really don't need to get into. I mean, when you start saying that lawyers who have not been shown to be qualified should be forced to take these cases, you have built-in air right there. But the big point for me was the Proposition 66 people want to add more judges, more prisons and counties, the counties would have to pay for it themselves. They want judges at the Superior Court to uh, you know, hold the first hearings and you go forward from there. But this is going to cost a lot of money. Everyone acknowledges that, but they provide no vehicle for how this is going to be paid. And this was tried some time ago when a bipartisan committee working for the legislature looked at it and said, this is what we can do to perhaps pick up the pace of the review process. There was never, to my knowledge at least, never one Republican or one Democrat in the legislature who moved forward saying, this is the bill, it's going to cost few hundred million dollars, but this is what I want to do. Not one person ever went forward with that. So the chances of this ever receiving funding from the legislature is nil. It's simply not going to happen. So it's a charade, in my opinion. Gil, this is Lori Weiner. I'm interested in the process that you went through in changing your mind about this issue. And the reason I ask is because I think that we're so entrenched on our sides in so many issues and on this issue that it might be enlightening to just walk us through how you changed your mind on this issue. Where I finally, Lori, decided to speak out was after I read an L.A. Times op-ed piece. Gosh, I don't recall the name of the judge, but he was known, and he was proud of this, as the hanging judge of Orange County. He had sent more people to death row than anyone else. And he came out with a powerful op-ed piece saying, this is a total waste. There is no useful purpose for the death penalty. Why do we go through with this with the incredible millions of dollars that are being spent for what? For nothing. We get nothing out of this. So I started looking at this, and I started doing some more research, and that's when I saw the number of people who had been on death row who were freed because there was either DNA evidence or there was other evidence showing that they did not belong on death row. And then the number of cases that I saw that were reported in the newspaper just in Los Angeles County of people that had been in prison for tens of years, and then they were found to be, we made a mistake. This person is not guilty of the crime committed. Had he or she been executed, you wouldn't have seen that. The case would have been forgotten. So it was that entire process, plus, for me, the incredible cost involved I said, why don't we use this money to try and help kids stay in school? Because that is the key, in my opinion, and I think many experts' opinion, to reducing crime. Keep kids in school, and you're going to reduce crime. So it was that. It was what it's done to the families of the murder victims. 
that it just wasn't fair to them to let this process go on for decades, not for a year or two or three or even four or five years, but for decades. And then we know statistically that over half of all cases are going to be reversed and sent back to the court, either for retrial on the penalty phase or on the guilt phase. So when you have all that, to me it was just, I know I'm going to anger some of my former colleagues and others, but it just makes sense. For me, it was something that I just had to be heard because I am the one that had the final sign-off when seeking the death penalty, and now I realize, gosh, this death penalty serves no useful purpose, and it's incredibly expensive, and we get nothing back for our dollar. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's very important for people to hear that. I'm thinking about where we stand in the United States Supreme Court on this issue, and the quote that keeps coming to my mind was something that Justice Harry Blackman said in a dissent back in 1994 decision, Collins versus Collins. He just announced, and I'm quoting him now, from this day forward, I shall no longer tinker with the machinery of death. That's what yep. Justice Blackman said. And right. now California has the opportunity on November 8th also to stop tinkering with the machinery of death. And the comments you've just given us, I think, will help a lot in people making up their minds about this important decision. Thank you, Don, for the opportunity, and thank you for taking this up, because I think it's uh, obviously a vitally important issue. And I'm convinced that both Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, libertarians, everyone, when they get the facts, they all conclude the same thing. This serves no useful purpose. It's a waste of money. Let's get rid of it. Let's keep them in prison for the rest of their lives, but not in luxury cells. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Gil. Thank you, Doug. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Oliana, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Thanks to Stephen Rohde and Gil Garcetti. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. <laughs>